0: Saturday morning, June 17, 1933. Union Station, Kansas City, Missouri. Notorious bank robber Frank Nash on the run after escaping from Leavenworth Federal Prison is nabbed in Hot Springs, Arkansas by two FBI agents and the McAllister, Oklahoma, police chief. After arriving at Union Station in Kansas City, Missouri, The four disembark from the train to make the dangerous journey by car up to Leavenworth, Kansas. Two more FBI agents and two Kansas City, Missouri police officers form a phalanx around the prisoner. Armed with two shotguns and pistols, they march through the station to the parking lot. As they watchfully load up the car, two men with machine guns shout for everyone to put their hands up. A thirty-second hell breaks loose. When the gunsmoke settles, five men are dead. Welcome back to Prison City Murders, a true crime podcast from Leavenworth, Kansas. I'm your host, Jana Goodman. Warning, this program may contain descriptions of violence, which may be disturbing to some listeners. There will be murders. Host may hurt listeners' feelings, give unsolicited advice, and be judgmental. Views and opinions expressed are those of the host and do not reflect the position of pretty much anybody else. Listener discretion and a functioning sense of humor are advised. As we've discussed, Leavenworth, Kansas has the well-deserved nickname of Prison City USA. And no, I do not currently reside in any of our prisons. Also, I am not an expert in forensics or legal matters or psychology. I'm just a true crime fan who researches murders and tries to be accurate so I can share what interests me with you. Opinions on this podcast are not professional ones. This is part two of the Union Station Massacre case. If you haven't listened to part one You won't know what I'm talking about, so you really should go do that before you listen to Part 2. Here's a quick recap of Part 1. According to the FBI, the three killers of FBI Agent Caffrey, Kansas City Police Officers Hermanson and Grooms, Chief Reed, and Prisoner Frank Nash at Union Station in 1933 are Vern Miller, Pretty Boy Floyd, and Adam Rischetti. By 1935, all three are dead. The question is whether the FBI account is the complete truth. Okay, enough talking about other stuff. Let's talk about murder. Listeners, let's try to analyze the official reports of what happened and see if they make sense. First, a little disclaimer, I'm visually spatially challenged, so I have trouble picturing things in my mind without a physical picture of it. I couldn't find a good diagram of the station and where everybody might have been in 1933. So I'm going to give you my best effort. There are several videos on the case on YouTube and a TV movie from 1975 called The Kansas City Massacre. The accuracy is not perfect, but they do give a good idea of what 1933 might have looked like. Union Station is a big rectangular building that faces south, with the long side running east to west. The train tracks run east-west on the north side of the building. There are three huge doors on the south side and a road runs east-west that goes right up to the front of the building for dropping off and picking up passengers. Then right across the street is parking. The closest parking area is a row on the south part of the road in front of the station where cars park next to each other facing south. Then there's a big parking lot where the rows go different directions, a little farther south. Now, the following analysis is partly what I think, partly what the FBI says, and partly what author Jeffrey Unger says. Sometimes we all agree and sometimes not, and... Sometimes it's just hard to say. Listeners, when in doubt, you really should take Unger's word for things. He worked on this for years, going over thousands of documents, FBI records, local historical stuff, and interviews. Just masterful work. Clearly, our bad guys are fully aware that the agents, the Chief, and Nash are going to get off the train and drive up to Leavenworth. I've already said that I would have stayed on the train and taken it up to Leavenworth. But Miller and the boys know that's not happening. Otherwise, I think the plan would have been to ambush the train They have lots of experience robbing trains or do something up in Leavenworth. Who tipped them off? Well, knowing the corruption of the Kansas City Police Department, it's not a stretch to conclude that KCPD tipped them off. They would have told them that Hermanson and Groom's would be there with the hotshot armored car and even worse when the two officers go to pick up the vehicle the machine gun that's usually in it is not there the officers don't have time to look for it so the only weapons they have are 38s KCPD says, oopsie, later, but somebody purposely took the Tommy gun out of the vehicle to help out the bad guys. Almost makes you wonder if someone wasn't setting up Hermanson and Grooms. Maybe Nash, too. Maybe the whole thing was really a mob hit. Something to think about. If you just look at what happened, you might think the bad guys were really planning to just kill everybody. I don't think so, but it's something to consider. Could Hermanson and Grooms be in on the escape plot? I gave that some thought partly because the corruption in the department is so pervasive and partly because there aren't more bad guys at the station. I would have brought at least six guys with guns, preferably machine guns or at least shotguns. Are the two KCPD officers the fourth and fifth bad guys? If that's the case, Maybe the real escape plan is to wait for the agents and the chief and Nash to start to get into the back of the hotshot and take Nash then. Honestly, using the armored car to transfer Nash seems like a lot better plan than special agent in charge of plan. If the two cops are in on the plan, a car full of gunmen could just pull up, hop out, and get the drop on law enforcement then. The two cops could make sure they're out of the line of fire, maybe even already up in front in the cab of the hotshot. They certainly couldn't be faulted for just dropping their guns. All they have are pistols. But, first of all, Hermanson and grooms wouldn't want to get killed. When Vetterly tells them they're putting Nash in Agent Caffrey's car, you'd think they'd want to talk him out of that. And that doesn't happen. So, if I'm them, I'm figuring out a way to bail. And they never do that. There's also evidence that at least one of them fired a pistol. So I think they're just two cops who got called out on a Saturday morning just trying to do their job. Okay, back to the story. The bad guys get to the station probably before dawn certainly before the agents and the police officers do at around 7 a.m. I think the bad guys are in a single getaway car. I also think they know the firepower facing them is just two shotguns and maybe some pistols. Certainly no machine guns. They fully expect to just yell hands up, point their machine guns, and everybody will drop their guns. They'll take Nash and drive off. After all, they have lots of experience with this, doing bank robberies and even kidnappings. But they don't know exactly what to expect right after Nash and his guards get off the train. So I would expect one of them to go inside and check things out. Is the train late? What platform is it coming in on? And I would kind of expect that guy to wait for the train and follow the group out of the station. The station will be crowded, and so it would be easy to blend in. The guys outside can watch for the hotshot to get there and observe whatever security people arrive. I can't spot the hotshot in any of the photos online, but Unger says Hermanson and Grooms park it up by the station in the pickup line there in the front. Caffrey and Vetterly arrive in their own cars, and park in the row across the street facing south with their front wheels up against the curb. Again, not sure why they don't park right behind the hotshot, ready to move out or at least back into the curb so you're ready to go after everybody gets in. As it turns out, they obviously plan to use Caffrey's car to take Nash up to Leavenworth, not the armored vehicle. No idea why anybody thought that was a good idea, but I don't know all the conditions, and I'm not a tactical expert. The bad guys no doubt see all this and figure out where Nash is going. So they park south of the agent's cars and wait for the group to come out of the building. All seven law enforcement officers surround Nash and take him out of the building. They pause at the door and survey the area. It's really crowded, so I'm guessing there are people on the sidewalk and cars going by. They're just sitting ducks, but I think they're really on guard, mainly to make sure Nash doesn't try to run off. He's handcuffed. Um, I would have had him in leg irons, too. There's a shotgun pointed at him, and they all have their guns drawn. Of course, that's just two shotguns and a few pistols, but... At that point, they all head across the street to the two parked cars. The bad guys start sneaking up, using parked cars for cover. I don't know if there's a bad guy behind Nash and the law enforcement personnel. Apparently, Chief Reed will be shot in the back of the head, so it's possible there's a gunman in the back. Or maybe Reed turned around to check right before he got shot. My guess is he would go off the side, the bad guy, and maybe duck between a couple of cars until he hears the signal hands up. What happens then is kind of a mess. You almost need a diagram to figure out what all's going on and who's going where when. Picture the two cars in the iconic picture of the massacre scene. Agent Caffrey unlocks the passenger side of his car, which is the one on the right-hand side facing to the west. Then he goes around to open the driver's door. I think it's a Two door Chevy. I can't see the door handles in the pictures, but comparing it to other 30 Chevy sedans, it looks like a four door would have a little window in the back. So you have to push the front seats forward to get into the back. So five people getting in this car is awkward to say the least, especially with two of them carrying shotguns and one of them in handcuffs. The FBI explains how everybody gets into position. Unger has a detailed account that's a little different, but everybody ends up in the same positions, however they got there. I can see all kinds of possibilities. Essentially, Hermanson and Grooms are between the cars by the front wheels. Unger adds that they are standing with Hermanson in front looking northeast, so that would be back across the car, and Grooms is looking to the southeast. So, Grooms would see the bad guys approach before Hermanson would, unless somebody's sneaking up from behind. Nash starts to get into the back seat where he would be between Agent Lackey and Chief Reed, who each have shotguns. But Agent Joe Lackey, who is about to get into the back seat behind the driver, or maybe he's already in the car, not sure, tells him he's riding in the front seat. Not really sure why, I guess, so they can keep the shotguns pointed at his back. I'm not sure why that's better than putting him securely in the middle of the back seat with pistols pointed at his ribs. Nash gets into the front seat and glides over behind the steering wheel. So the front passenger seat can be pushed down while Agent Frank Smith gets into the middle of the back seat. Again, awkward. Lackey is sitting behind the driver and Reed is behind the passenger seat. That will be really important to our story. Caffrey reach, reaches to open the driver's door. In the pictures, you can see, it's a little bit open, and I think Nash is slumped against it. I don't know what Agent Vetterly is planning just then. Maybe Hermanson and Grooms are supposed to ride up to Leavenworth with... Vetterly in his car. Or maybe Vetterly is going to ride in the front passenger seat of Caffrey's car. Then the cops can follow them, either in Vetterly's car or the hot shot or not at all. Just don't really know. At that moment, Vern Miller, who is behind the hood, of a car parked a few spaces to the southwest of Caffrey's car yells, put him up, 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 up. His accomplice moves a few feet more into the open. They both point machine guns toward Caffrey's car. Then the shooting starts. According to the FBI, One of the bad guys yells, let him have it. As I've said, if your plan is to rescue your buddy, opening fire with machine guns doesn't make much sense. So maybe they mean shoot the guys outside and then do what? Hope Nash can get out of the car and run toward them maybe move up close enough to shoot just the lawman in the car i just don't think anybody yell let him have it and neither does unger his theory and i think the truth is that the guy in the back seat on the driver's side, panicked, and his shotgun went off. Nash hasn't moved over to the passenger side yet, so the blast blows the back of his head off. Not the machine gun. When you look at the pictures of the car, that's obvious. There's a huge hole in the windshield that looks like a shotgun hole. Plus, the shattered glass is on the hood, showing it was broken from inside. There is a much smaller bullet hole at the top of the windshield in the middle. I would say that came from a bad guy's machine gun, but that's not what killed Nash. That was definitely a shotgun. From the back. Now, could the sequence have gone the other way? Somebody fired a shot, a bad guy, or maybe even one of the cops or Agent Caffrey when they saw the bad guys on the move? Maybe, but that's very unlikely. So the shotgun blast is why the bad guys started firing, and they are experienced shooters. Hermanson and Grooms and Caffrey are cut down immediately. Vetterly is unarmed, and he gets winged. Chief Reed is shot in the head, and Agent Lackey is almost killed. When the shooting stops, Vetterly takes off running toward Union Station. He gets shot at, but they miss. The bullet holes are still in the wall at Union Station. Amazingly, Agent Smith dives forward, pushing down the front seat and freezes. He is playing dead when one of the gunmen looks in the car and says, they're all dead. At that point, of course, the gunmen speed off. According to the FBI website agent Joe Lackey is sitting behind the driver's seat. Interestingly, Lackey testifies at Adam Rachetti's trial that he was actually on the other side of the car. It was Chief Reed behind the driver. Lackey also testifies that the two shotguns were both 12 gauge nothing special about either one and that's actually the story the kansas city office pedals initially even though they have chief reed's 16 gauge shotgun sawed off and some shells from it at the scene right there in the fbi office i'm not really sure why Lackey lies about this the lies are easy to disprove just ask the people who were on the scene whoever pulled him out of the car or just about anybody there if he's telling the truth that he's on the other side of the car why isn't that on the FBI website because Lackey's lying but there will never be any consequences for that. Listeners, for me, that right there proves Unger's case. Lackey knows that he panicked and precipitated the massacre, and he did it with Chief Reed's 16-gauge special personal sawed-off shotgun. You'll hear... A little more about that in a minute. There are some rumblings about what really started the massacre. Some fads and a gun expert have questioned the official story. But Hoover is never going to allow anything like that to come to light. And people have to lie or at least stay silent to perpetuate the cover-up. And they do. Agents Vetterly and Smith have to know what really happened. And they never say anything. One question I do have, even about Unger's account, is how the shotguns got switched. I mean, even I can tell the difference between a sawed-off and one with a regular length barrel. Unger contends that either Lackey or Reed just picked up the wrong gun when they got off the train, and they just never bothered to correct the situation. I don't know. Maybe they're just so tired by the time they get to Kansas City, and and Lackey just thinks one shotgun is about the same as any other. That's the only explanation I can come up with. So, is it possible that Reed was the one sitting behind the driver holding his own gun? But that's not in any communications that Unger found up until Rischetti's trial. So, whatever the reason... However it happened, Lackey is holding the wrong shotgun. So, an experienced agent who's been under tremendous stress for about 48 hours accidentally shoots off a shotgun, which causes the bad guys to start mowing people down with machine guns. It's bad, but it's not, it's understandable. It's obvious, though, why Hoover and others in the Bureau wouldn't want it to come out. It makes them look incompetent, and they were. But Lackey's victim is a really bad guy, and the murderers are responsible for the deaths of the others, Right? Well, not so fast. The gun that killed Nash was Chief Reed's personal weapon. It was a 16-gauge sawed-off shotgun. 16-gauge means its blast is much more powerful than a 12-gauge shotgun. The shorter barrel means shot from the shotgun disperses more widely than with a long barrel. On top of all that, Reed loads his own shells with ball bearings, not smaller little pellets. Reed's shotgun was a fabulous weapon against gangsters, but only in the right hands. It's a very difficult weapon to operate properly unless you have experience with it. It's a Winchester Model 12 and the barrel's been sawed off. I asked a friend of mine who's a gun expert and he's very familiar with that weapon and he said it's very tricky to operate it it's wonderful to use once you know what you're doing but if you don't know what you're doing and you just start messing around with it bad things can happen so when lackey panicked he just fumbled around frantically with the gun, thinking it was jammed, and it went off, and ball bearings went everywhere. They're found near Nash, and outside the car by Agent Caffrey's head. Most likely, Agent Caffrey and Nash were killed at the same time by the shotgun. Ball bearings are also found near and in the car on the other side of Grooms and Hermanson. So if you look at the picture of the driver's side of the other car, you can see the front of the side window is shattered and the bottom of the windshield on that side is broken out and there's glass on the hood. So there's another shotgun blast from the 16-gauge in the direction of Grooms and Hermanson. To me, it, it sounds like Lockie, Lackey Sorry, is trying to shoot at the gunman and doesn't realize how wide the shot is going. The autopsies show that Nash, Caffrey, and Hermanson were killed by shotgun blasts, probably from the 16-gauge shotgun. Chief Reed has slugs from a machine gun and a 38. It's not a stretch to think that 38 came from one of the two KCPD officers. So four of the five dead men were actually victims friendly fire. That's not a story the FBI ever wants told, and they go to great lengths to cover that up. Page 228, The Union Station Massacre, written by Jeffrey Unger. Quote, that is not the stuff of greatness empires aren't built on failed missions and panicked agents and bungled investigations young john edgar hoover and his fbi needed a cause a crusade he needed good and evil and he needed a victory the truth would offer none of that. But the legend provided it all. Unquote. Listeners, on balance, even after hearing all this, I'm still glad we have the FBI. I choose to believe that FBI agents are good people who take their oath to heart, support, and defend the Constitution of the United States. My son's father-in-law is a retired FBI agent, and I know that none of this would have happened on his watch. While there is much that might make me question it, I also hope that agents take this to heart. The words of W.H. Drain Lester in 1935, the year the Bureau finally got its official name, Federal Bureau of Investigation quote, F-B-I, from which we might well choose our motto, for those initials also represent the three things for which the Bureau and its representatives always stand, fidelity, bravery, integrity. All the dead from the Union Station Massacre have memorials on findagrave.com. After Agent Caffrey's death, his widow stayed in Kansas and worked at the FBI field office for many years, raising their son. Their son, Jimmy, who was barely a year old when his father was cut down, became a distinguished M.D., in Kansas City. He married and raised eight sons. When he died in 2013, he had 20 grandchildren and seven great-grandchildren. Chief Reed's descendants still treasure his special 16-gauge shotgun. Detective Hermanson's son became a police officer with the Kansas City Police Department. I couldn't find any children for officer grooms. In 1940, his widow is single and working for KCPD. I couldn't find anything after that, at least in Kansas City. So, I truly hope Myrtle found happiness somewhere. Agent Lackey didn't stay with the FBI for very long after the Reschetti trial. By 1940, he and his wife are up in South Dakota, where he is buried. Special Agent in Charge Reed Vetterly spent a few years in Salt Lake City as the police chief there. He was only 49 when he died. According to Unger's book Agent Frank Smith went back to Oklahoma and that's such a common name I couldn't find anything else on him for sure. So I said I'd talk about my process a little. I keep a list of cases that I think might be interesting for the podcast. I update it whenever I hear about something new. Nowadays, I don't have much time to listen to other podcasts, but my top five favorite favorites, never miss them. Are True Crime Garage, Generation Y, W H Y, California Dreaming, Trail Went Cold, and Trace Evidence. I do have more favorites on my Stitcher list, but I don't always have time to listen to them. Unfortunately, that's the downside of doing a podcast. I'll try to get a good list going and put it out there on the blog. Anyway, I will do cases that other podcasts have already done, but I'll wait a good while until I'm pretty sure I've forgotten what I've heard. Here's an example. I have the Eastburn murders on my list. It's a fascinating case. The murderer is on death row right up here at Fort Leavenworth in the disciplinary barracks. I bought a book about it and had it outlined all ready to go. Then I settled back one Sunday night to listen to... Justin and Aaron on generation Y and they were doing the Eastburn murders I'm a little bummed out about that because first of all now I can't listen to that episode till after after I do my own research and I feel like I probably should wait a while to do it so it's not so close to theirs. From now on, when I pick a case, I'll try to check podcasts to see if anybody's done it already and make sure it's been a good while since I've listened to the episode. It It's always possible that I'll miss a podcast. Sometimes the names don't really match the case on some episodes. Um, But you'll just have to take my word on that. For this case, I only found one true crime podcast, Gangland Wire, which I've never listened to, because I didn't think I was interested in you know, mafia gangster type cases. But after doing this case, which I thought was really interesting, and there were a lot more interesting facets of the case that I just didn't have time to get into. So I subscribed to it. Maybe sometime I'll have time to listen. There are some other podcasts that covered the Kansas City Massacre, but they weren't true crime podcasts, so I know I've never listened to them. When I'm researching, I usually start with Wikipedia. Um, Sorry for not crediting you, Wikipedia, before. I'll put you in my show notes from now on. And by the way, listeners, when they start asking for pledges, try to send a few bucks their way. What would we do without Wikipedia? Then I go through newspapers. I have a lot of subscriptions and blogs and genealogy sites for background. If I can find a book that looks good on the case, I get it out of the library or buy it. And then I plug the book on the podcast, like I did Jeffrey Unger's book in this episode, and it seems like I've done, I know I've used at least one, and I think maybe two other books on previous podcasts. Sometimes I even get out there and do some original reporting, like going to places associated with the murder, and even talking to people. I don't need to credit that or my own opinions, which I tell you are my own opinions. I bought my sound effects and not that anybody wants to take credit from me for my theme music. I wrote that my very own self. Okay, one final acknowledgement. When I was first trying to figure out how to structure the podcast, I totally ripped off podcasters. Robin Warder, The Trail Went Cold, and Steven Pacheco, Trace Evidence. I purposely tried and still do, To make my format just like theirs. Thank you for listening. I've posted the links to the sources used for this episode in the show notes. I'd appreciate it if you would subscribe to Prison City Murders and write a review. Even critical feedback is appreciated. You can email me at prisoncitymurders at gmail.com or comment on the cases on the podcast website, Prison City That's just blueberry with no E's.net. Until next time please don't murder anybody. I don't think you can listen to podcasts behind bars.